You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, the White House is in full holiday mode. Uh, All the decorations are up. Uh, This year's decorations include some of the following in the White House. 98 Christmas trees, over 142,000 lights and a 300-pound gingerbread house. Clearly, that didn't happen overnight. It took months and months of preparation to be ready to be able to decorate the White House. Well, I think when we come to Christmas, we have to realize preparation should be involved, spiritual preparation. Obviously, the celebration of the Advent wreath is not something that's in the Bible. Uh, It was developed in church history for the very purpose that we're saying here, that in the midst of the calendar year, focusing specifically on the four Sundays before the observance of Christmas on different aspects of Jesus Christ. Uh, And this year, we're looking at our series, calling it Christmas in the Psalms. So we'll look at a different psalm each Sunday, to, to, again, intentionally put our thoughts where they need to be. And today we're going to look at Psalm chapter 2. One of the things when you open the book of Psalms is we often think of the chapters as all just individual chapters. In other words, chapter 1 is chapter 1, chapter 2 is chapter 2. But in particular in Psalms, you find the first two Psalms are critical for what's in the rest of the book. In other words, if you look at Psalm 1, where it talks about uh, meditating upon the word of the Lord, uh, that lays out for us our our duty before God. And that's what the whole book of Psalms is about, how to praise God, how to worship him. What is our duty or responsibility? Psalm 2 does something that we'll see is also true of many of the other Psalms. It shows us our Savior. It it points to Jesus. And and that certainly is a very important element of the Psalms. And so we're going to focus on Psalm 2. And I hope to draw out of this text three different points about this particular Psalm. 
Uh, the first was actually hinted at in Tim's prayer for the offering, um, that Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm. It, it's a prophetic psalm. Uh, notice if you look at Psalm 2, there's no title or superscription. Like not anything said as to an occasion for the psalm. Uh, we can assume that David is the writer of it. Uh, it may have been related to some kind of coronation ceremony of Israel's kings. Uh, but what we do know is the psalm is prophetic. In other words, it's clearly relevant to the people of Israel, but pointing way beyond them, pointing beyond David as a king, pointing beyond Solomon as a king, pointing really to the ultimate king. And we can conclude this because look at some of the titles that are mentioned in Psalm 2. Notice verse 2. At the end of the verse, it speaks about they oppose and, and set up opposition against his anointed one. And you probably have a little footnote that indicates that's the equivalent of saying the Messiah. One who is set apart for a specific purpose or task. They're anointed. And so certainly in the Old Testament, you had prophets and priests who could be anointed. But, but this is the ultimate anointed one. Look also at verse 6. Notice, God speaking says, I have installed my king. So now we're referring to one who is distinct from God, but yet co-equal in nature and purpose and function, that, that this is God's king that we're talking about. And then finally, notice verse 7. It says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me, you are my son today, I have become your father. And we can see other examples where we know that this clearly isn't referring to David, but is referring to Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so within those three verses we've just looked at, you have titles that speak clearly and point us to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. So that's why this psalm is often called the psalm of the Messiah. It, it's right there in front of us. But to confirm that conclusion, we need to go to the New Testament. And so I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We'll look at two, two passages in Acts. Acts chapter 4 and verses 25 through 30. One of the best ways that I've ever heard someone describe the relationship between the Old Testament and the New is that the Old Testament is like walking into a room full of furniture with the lights off. The New Testament is walking into that same room, but the lights are on. Like now you can see everything clearly. So what Psalm 2 alluded to and clearly pointed to, the New Testament will fill that in for us. So notice in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, beginning at verse 25, uh, Peter and John have been interrogated by the Sanhedrin. Uh, they've been let go. They've been threatened and let go. And they return to the believers to tell them what's happened. So we pick up at verse 25. It says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. 
And the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice there how Luke, the writer of Acts, is connecting by inspiration of the Holy Spirit what Psalm 2 said and what the apostles were experiencing. They were threatened. They're going to be persecuted by nations, rulers, and kings. And that is exactly what Psalm 2 was talking about. And it says, they will do this. Why? Because of your servant, Jesus. One other example, I'll go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and verse 32. Acts chapter 13. And in verse 32, here you have Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary trip. Uh, and as they're spreading the good news, again, you have them referencing two, two passages in Psalms, one in Psalm 2, another one in Isaiah. But, but notice how they're pulling from the Psalms, agreeing that these Psalms were talking about Jesus. They are prophetic. So beginning at verse 32 of chapter 13, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And so there we see how the New Testament helps us see clearly how not just Psalm 2, but the words from Isaiah 55, the words from Psalm 16 are prophetic. The titles indicate that, and now these actual cross-references say we're, we're connecting the dots correctly. So returning to Psalm 2, we now are approaching it. This is a psalm that has meaning for David and the people of Israel in their context, but it's pointing us to Christ. It's talking about what will the Messiah experience. And that's what we're considering as we come to Advent. What was his first coming like? What should we anticipate about his return? So look at me now again at verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 2. And now we'll consider that it is a painful psalm. Uh, one of the things about psalms is it's said that they provide an anatomy of the soul. You know, in other words, they, they cover the full gamut of human emotions. From, from great joy to, to sorrow and to pain. And you can't read this psalm without also saying it, it's a very painful psalm when you consider what it says. Notice in verses 1 and 2, which we read, there's the anticipated opposition 
to the Messiah. So this chosen one is going to come, but, but note carefully what's mentioned in verse 1 and 2. Four particular groups are highlighted, four powerful groups who are going to oppose this promised one. Nations will conspire, peoples will plot, kings of the earth will take their stand, and rulers will gather against this one. And that's kind of what we heard in the Acts 13 passage. Paul mentions, you know, the Sanhedrin mentions kings and rulers. I think ultimately Paul will appeal and, and stand before Nero to, to defend the faith, to defend who Jesus Christ is. And so early on now, not only is this pointing to, to Jesus, but it's saying this is the reception that he is going to, to receive. Uh, and you're probably very familiar with John's prologue, the opening of the Gospel of John. It says this one will come, and he will come unto his own, and his own will deny him. They, they will reject him. Uh, not just reject, but they will oppose him. Look again at verse 3. Notice the, the response of those that will, will oppose and push back against this chosen one. They will say things like this. Let their chains, let's, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. In other words, they're going to approach the message of this chosen one as being oppressive. Something that is, doesn't give us freedom. Isn't that what we see today around us? People wanting to reject the Bible, Christianity, uh, calling it oppressive. It's just rules. You know, no one's going to tell me how, how to live my life and things like that. that. That's exactly what you see here in this outright rebellion or tyranny against the very one who created them. And so it should cause us to stop for a moment and say, why is the opposition? Why will it be so intense? And the answer lies in the sinfulness of man's heart that the one thing we don't want is to submit to God. And that has not changed since the fall. And so you have this glimpse here into the opposition that is going to hit directly upon this chosen one. But there's another aspect of this that we want to consider is if it will fall upon the anointed one, what about those who give their allegiance and obedience to this anointed one? What about them? And so now we're quickly reminded the New Testament talks about the promise of future opposition to followers of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 15, for Jesus, in this case, states it very clearly hours before he's going to be arrested and taken to the cross, John chapter 15, and verses 18 through 23. Because it's one thing to read this psalm and clearly see that the Messiah will be rejected, that, that he will be carted off and crucified and mistreated. And, and that's an injustice alone. But we're also reminded, if that happened to him, what's the promise, what's the teaching about you and me as believers? Well, in John chapter 15, verse 18 and following, 
Jesus is giving final instructions to his disciples. He knows what's going to happen to him. He's already told his disciples. But listen to what he says, beginning at verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. What a concise statement Jesus makes there. A, I think, reality check for many believers. We should not expect the world to be sympathetic toward us. We should not be surprised that we face obstacles of different kind, whether it be you know, our, our present tax-exempt status issue or other challenges. Jesus says clearly, if you were of the world, they, they would love you. They would embrace you. They would welcome you. But that's not what we've been called to. And I like how John records it there when he says, you know, why would we think that the servant is greater than the master? Like, if, if this happened to the master, why would we think our treatment would be better? Or we would have less challenges and things like that. And so Psalm 2 is speaking of the reality, not just of the Messiah who will face opposition, but pointing us to those in Christ who will also face challenges. And that could be on a personal level, it can be on a church level, it can be on a national level. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 2, because we've seen so far that this psalm clearly is prophetic. It, it is pointing us, it is naming Jesus Christ without using that specific title. It's naming Jesus Christ. It's pointed us ahead to the fact that it's a painful psalm in many ways, at least to read the first three verses. It should be painful because we know what did happen to this one who came. But then we get to our third point. Uh, this particular psalm is a profitable psalm. Now I realize on the one hand, uh, all scripture is profitable and is intended for our teaching, correction, and training. But I think there's something about this psalm in particular that, that is profitable in two very different directions. And so look with me at verses 4 through 6. After this stinging announcement that all of these nations, everyone is going to conspire against the anointed, it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. They notice all of a sudden the scene moves from earth to heaven because this is a picture of now God looking at these things that are being done. 
And that's a very important change in scenery because it reminds us of the absolute sovereignty and holiness of the triune God. You know, we get so absorbed sometimes in things going on in our lives or in our immediate circle or sphere of life uh, that we lose sight sometimes of God's perspective. And here we're taken, in a sense, to look at what does God see in this? Notice there's no shock. It's not that God's saying, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. But it testifies to his absolute power. Notice, as it says in verse 4, he, he laughs. Now, this doesn't take away from his wrath and his judgment, which you'll see will follow. But in the sense, he, he's, he's amused by this. You know, who, who does this creation who I've made, who do they think they are that they could prevent my will from taking place? That they could stop the work of God? What, what a joke. It, it's almost as if God in, in tongue-in-cheek is saying, that, that's all you have? You know, even Satan, you're going you're gonna to try to come against me? That's, that's it? So he laughs at them. To scoff is a, a very strong word. It means to, to mock them. Uh, it's interesting. Sometimes you have in the Old Testament prophets' writings uh, where they use taunt songs. Uh, the best way, I think, to describe this would be it, it's almost like trash talking to, to kind of say to the pagans, oh, you, you think you're God so great? All right, so do all you can. Bring, bring it on. God says, bring it on. Do all you can. And you're going to see that there's only one sovereign God. There's only one who is all-powerful. Notice verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger. Uh, we don't often associate Advent with anger and wrath. But we really should think about that because God sent his son into the world. Yes, because he loved the world, but is he also a God of justice? And is he also a God who will judge and condemn all who are without excuse because of creation testifying to who God is and because of the reality of hearing the message of salvation. And so this psalm reminds us that he is a God who rebukes them. He, he corrects them. He makes it very clear. He vindicates his character. But notice that, well, it says, it adds there, he terrifies them in his wrath, that, that they are left undone against his wrath. Uh, I think we live in a day and age where we are used to seeing people who are arrogant and prideful. This is kind of saying all that's going to be stripped away. When, when you are under the wrath or judgment of God, you will have no defense. You will have no way of countering that. I shared before, I think, the story of Bertrand Russell. He was a philosopher um, who was a, an outright atheist, very strong about that throughout his whole life. Uh, when he was near death, one of his friends uh, said to him, what if you're wrong? You know, you, you've lived your whole life saying there is no God. What if you're wrong? And Bertrand, even though sick, raised his hand and said, I will shake my fist at God and say you didn't give me enough evidence. I doubt that that happened because you'd be undone in the presence of God under his wrath. Notice verse 6, in spite of the opposition 
What does verse 6 say? God says, I have installed my king. All we need to think back is think of the, the whole narrative of Christ leading up to the events in his crucifixion. The, the religious leaders did not want to crucify him during that time of Passover. That, that was not what they wanted, but that was God's timetable. And so it occurred according to God's timetable, not man's. And here you have God saying, all of this opposition, it is not going to stop what I desire to do. But I mentioned that this psalm is profitable. So how does all that relate to you and me? Well, it's profitable in two opposite directions. One is for the unbeliever. It actually can be profitable. And for the believer. Let me show you here how it can be profitable for the unbeliever. Notice that in verse 10, it says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is in this psalm a warning to the unbeliever. God's grace is even evident in this psalm where if an unbeliever by God's grace hears and responds, but notice the warning is you are going to be the object of wrath. And you notice how verse 12 says, kiss the sun. It's an interesting phrase. Um, it means to, to worship or honor. Um, there are many that would argue part of the root of this comes from in idolatry, often the adherents would, would kiss the feet of the idol that they've made. And so it's kind of taking that imagery. You, now you're in the presence of a living God. You were to honor and worship that God. And so there's a warning here. If you don't do that, notice what it says, you will be destroyed in your way. Not you will be given multiple opportunities, but, but you will be destroyed. That's a, that's a warning that could be profitable to the person who denies and refuses to give obedience to Jesus Christ. But clearly this psalm is also intended to encourage and strengthen those who put their faith in God, those who have acknowledged this anointed one who has come. Because as I read there, notice verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear. This is an encouraging thing to believers. Not be fearful of others around you. Not be fearful of other individuals who oppose my work. Serve and fear God and God alone. And that word fear there is that sense of proper reverence and acknowledgement. One of the things we want to be careful of here is to realize that's a wholehearted endeavor, something every day we have to work on. Because when we do not submit to God's obedience, we are, in a sense, declaring war on God. And so as, as easy as it is for us to see the ungodly in this and say, well, they're declaring war, they're conspiring against God, I would caution us as believers, realize even in little pockets of our life, if we don't submit to God, we are taking God on. 
we're, we're kind of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you on on this one. And that's like declaring war. Notice as well, encouraging to the believer, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. We, we think of the Advent season as a time of joy, but yeah, where does real joy come from? It comes from walking with God, sub submitting to the King of Kings. Notice verse 12 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What an assurance to us in a world where we, we know our, our culture is ungodly. And yet that's the world we're called to reach, so we have to embrace that. But there's no question our world is going in the opposite direction of God. And rather than throwing our hands up or saying, woe is us, you know, this is so bad, we should rejoice in saying we can serve God with fear, we can rejoice in trembling. Blessed will we be when we put our trust and confidence in him. It's interesting that if you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, you have a quotation from Psalm 2 there. So we've seen so far Psalm 2 referenced in Acts in two places. Now if you go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26, you have the Apostle John quoting something from Psalm chapter 2. And that was the section, as you'll see, where it speaks about this one who will come. Um, will rule with an iron scepter. Now, just for the, the context here, you'll notice this is in the letter to the church in Thyatira. Uh, it's a church that is being reprimanded here for compromising, uh, for kind of getting caught up in some idolatry. So listen to how these words are applied, beginning at verse 26, and I'll read through 29. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So there's a promise here of victory and overcoming, not merely to the church in Thyatira, but really to all believers, because it says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, that this promise that is fulfilled in Christ becomes a reality in us now. We become triumphant in Christ Jesus. This one who rules with an iron scepter is our king and we will reign with him. And so it's an interesting application here of a church struggling with lots of different things, saying your, your Messiah, your king, is greater than all of this. Martin Luther, who certainly went through his own series of trials and persecutions um, as he sought to just put the Bible out into the hands of the people, made this comment, he said, the javelins which you see are coming are not going to harm you. And I love that thought. He doesn't say the javelins you imagine, but, but the javelins you see 
like the trials, persecutions that you can see in your life, that you can see in the lives of others, in Christ, these are not intended to harm you. They are to remind us that we are overcomers in Jesus Christ. So what a good psalm, not only to start the book of Psalms, but to begin Advent on. To realize that in these words, we have a prophetic psalm, we have a painful psalm, but we certainly have a profitable one. And that leads us right into what we observe in the Lord's Supper. We're remembering this anointed one has come. He has triumphed over sin and death. There was a tremendous cost to that. And yet, through faith in Christ, we now are triumphant in him. So when you see those javelins coming, remember they cannot harm you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire uh, to worship you with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul. And so as we come to this time of the Lord's Supper, may we realize it is more than just a, a confession of faith before our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is our confession of faith before you, uh, that Lord, you have called us to be your servants. You have called us to suffer, to endure trials if necessary, to not compromise, but to remain faithful. May this time of worship strengthen us for that task. In Jesus' name, amen.